I had an old lady, about 80 years old, want to know if I could cut her toenails. Now, I, I swear to God, I told my wife, and I'm going to go cut that lady's toenail. No, you're not. <laughs> she wouldn't let me do it, or I wouldn't have done it. You know, I'm just that kind of person. I mean, crazy stuff like that. You're a good man. Yeah, that's what my wife said. David Bubba Hughes is the mayor of Bridgeport, Alabama. That's my nickname, Bubba. There's a lot of Bubba's in Alabama. (laughs) Bridgeport is a small town in Jackson County, population 2,300. It's at the northeastern tip of Alabama, near the border of Tennessee. It's 35 miles from Chattanooga, two hours from Atlanta, and two hours from Birmingham. So we're centrally located. If you want to go somewhere, it's, it's easy to get there. Bridgeport is typical of many small towns. It skews elderly, and neighbors live miles apart, but they still know each other intimately. It's the kind of place where a new boat landing is a major public works project. It's the kind of place where even the mayor will cut your toenails for you. I just feel like our community is very helpful, very interested in helping others and and glad to see other people succeed. I don't really know how to describe it, but it's kind of a family feeling. This is Karen Ridley. She lives a short drive from Bridgeport in a town called Stevenson, population 2000. Bridgeport was our rival school. And um, when I started ninth grade, the two schools combined to form North Jackson High School. Uh, That was a very unique experience to meet and become friends with our rivals. But even with the two schools combined, my graduating class only had about 100 people in it. So um, these are very small, intimate communities. And when I grew up, I would walk to town or walk to my friends' houses. We would play outside till dark. We would sleep with our doors open. Just a very small, safe place. The area has lots of skilled tradespeople. Electricians, carpenters, construction workers. And that's because much of the economy in Jackson County revolved around heavy industry, like the Widow's Creek Power Plant, built in the 1950s, halfway between Bridgeport and Stevenson. It was one of the many massive infrastructure projects, like nuclear plants, hydroelectric dams, and coal-fired power stations, built by the Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA. These projects created lots of jobs for people in Jackson County, like Karen Ridley's dad. We moved here when I was four years old. And uh, my dad, we moved here because he was an electrician and he was helping to build the um, Belfont nuclear plant for TVA. The TVA looms large over the southeast. It's a federal corporation established by Congress in 1933 as a response to the Great Depression. The interest of the public in the widest possible use of electricity is superior to any private interest. Where this private interest and this public interest conflict, the public interest must prevail. If this conflict can be reconciled... It reforested lands for flood control. It helped struggling farmers, and it built big dams and power lines. Today, it mostly operates large power plants. TVA is a is a public power company, uh, and it, it's actually still a federally owned company, but it's a not-for-profit electric, electrical utility. That's Thomas Gamble. He was the guy admiring the switchyard in our last episode. Thomas worked at TVA for nearly 18 years as a supervisor at a hydropower station and the Widow's Creek plant. He's from Stevenson, too. TVA defined small-town life in the Southeast. It brought electricity to large swaths of the South for the first time. It created thousands of technical jobs. And the hydroelectric dams created big lakes, spawning a recreation economy. It was a good company. I really had a a great time working for them. Uh, 
felt pretty passionate about the things that TVA did to help the community. I don't think the whole Tennessee Valley and most of the southeast would be where it's at today if some of those moves weren't done to try to stimulate and make this area productive in the 1930s even. Remember Dr. Nan Bowden, the robotics executive who we heard from in a previous episode? Her father and grandfather both worked as electricians for the TVA. And my family was, uh, our, our whole trajectory, our whole arc was dramatically impacted by TVA. That work helped pull Nan's family out of poverty and into the middle class when they moved from Mississippi to Alabama. It was literally life-saving for many families in the South. Coming out of the Depression, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say kind of life or death. People's life expectancy and their overall economic livelihoods were directly tied to infrastructure. But like a lot of rural communities, economic headwinds blew into Jackson County. A major nuclear plant was put on hold in the 80s, which cost the area construction jobs. Later, global competition forced paper and textile mills to close, and manufacturing jobs were offshored. Meanwhile, TVA's reliance on coal became an increasing liability. You know, the coal plants, to be able to burn coal and support clean environment initiatives and keep that plant economically functional, just got to a point it's not really a reality right now. Uh, it, it makes the cost so high, it's prohibitive for companies. You know, it costs you more to make it than you can sell it for. It's a pretty easy answer on how you do business, right? Super cheap renewable energy and natural gas have been forcing aging coal-fired power plants to close. Plants like Widow's Creek near Stevenson. In 2019, the coal plant was demolished after more than half a century in operation. On a warm autumn morning, two 500-foot smokestacks came tumbling to the ground. The closure of Widow's Creek was a long time coming, but when those last 90 jobs at the plant disappeared, it was yet another economic hit to Jackson County. And as a manager, Thomas saw a lot of people take those hits. If you've ever had the opportunity where you either had to to fire someone or or lay someone off, it's always bothered me personally to send someone home that that I know is a good worker because either the job's ended or we've run out of money. And, and that's, that's what it felt like to me. So you're, you're talking to people who've served you for years and been very reliable, never had issue with, and now today I no longer need you. Uh, and it's you know they're, they're very limited on what their options are outside of you, right? You could feel people were, were losing their livelihood. Uh, I mean, and that, that's a tough spot to be. What most people in Jackson County didn't realize was that the new digital economy was about to collide with the old energy economy. So do you remember the first time you heard about it? Yeah, I do. So everyone had heard that the TVA Widows Creek plant was being sold, but no one knew who the buyer was. So there was talk for a good while about that. One day, my mother-in-law was over at the house visiting. We didn't believe her at first. Pretty much a lot of people started talking about it then. And so just the more the more you hear a rumor, the more you believe it. This is Where the Internet Lives, a podcast from Google about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Barry Fisher. I'm a data storyteller at Google, and I'm your guide through the physical places that make the internet run, places that very few people get to see firsthand. So far, we've explored the scrappy origins of data centers, looked at how they've evolved into warehouse-sized computers, and talked about the different ways that you use them every day. In this episode, When a Data Center Comes to Town.
In normal times, if you're looking for a party at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday night, go look for Karen Ridley. She'll be in a small business park in Stevenson, Alabama, just past the storefront with propane tanks and grills. So you walk in, and I have fans all around the room because we get really hot. And um, I just have a little table there. You sign in. I have my computer and speaker sitting on the table. And I have a, a little party light in the corner. <laughs> and so when it's time for class, we turn the lights down low, and we have the party light on and turn the music up high, and, and we just dance. Karen's been a Zumba instructor for eight years. She's skilled in Zumba core, Zumba glutes, aqua Zumba, and Zumba rhythms. She knows how to hustle and how to have a good time doing it. Oh, yeah. I just, I've always had strong leadership skills. And so I've been a cheerleading coach for my daughter's Little League. I've been a vacation Bible school director at church. I just kind of gravitate toward that, I think. I just have those, those characteristics. So that's how it is in Zumba. I just, I just do. I don't, I don't even think about it. You know, it just kind of comes naturally. Cheerleading coach, vacation Bible school director, Zumba instructor. That's just a sampling of Karen's varied resume. She enlisted in the Navy so she could pay for college. She explored nursing, accounting, and even pharmacology before eventually landing on computer science. While putting herself through school, she was also busy raising two kids and juggling full-time work at the local utility and a medical office. That drive came from Karen's parents, who had started their own business. And so I just always learned that, you know, you work for what you get. Her family originally came to Jackson County when her dad got a job building a nuclear power plant for TVA. But that didn't last. And when he was laid off from that job, he became the town photographer. He always had an interest in photography. And so he was an entrepreneur. He opened his own business. Yeah, he photographed people as they were growing up. So in baby photos or family pictures. He did the Little League football and baseball team photos. He was our school photographer for several years. He did people's senior portraits and weddings and uh, family reunions, pretty much anything. Most everybody in the whole county came to him. That's the kind of story you hear a lot in Jackson County. The owner of a popular restaurant in town, for example, also owns a landscaping business, a pawn shop, and a U-Haul truck rental. Even the mayor of Bridgeport, Bubba Hughes, manages a side gig alongside his full-time day job and his political duties. I'm a part-time mayor, and I got a full-time job with Bridgeport Utilities. I've worked there 34 years and been the mayor 12 years and on city council 12 years. So I've got 24 years in government. I've got a mowing service on the side, too, so that keeps me busy. It's also the kind of story playing out in rural areas all across the U.S. Tens of thousands of production jobs have moved from Alabama to other countries since the 90s. The ones left are paying less. And jobs in the coal sector, which were important to the local economies in Bridgeport and Stevenson, have been dwindling for years. Here's Thomas Gamble. So I started my career at the original Widders Creek steam plant, coal-powered plant. I left that site several years before it closed, but, you know, those things don't happen overnight. So a lot of that process was what we used to call a slow death. The demand for coal has fallen steadily over the last decade. 
The slow death of the Widow's Creek plant meant that all the businesses that depended on the plant, suppliers, restaurants, contractors, they took a hit too. And they'd call up plant managers like Thomas, who oversaw budgets. They're calling, wanting to know, hey, what's going on? Why, why are y'all not taking shipments? Why are you cutting back? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's to your regular fuel suppliers. It's just local businesses and restaurants. When, when you're not doing construction or you're not doing large work, there's a lot of questions that come from, hey, why the decisions you're making are causing us not to be able to, to maintain business and they're starting to adjust headcount. And then it was Thomas. With fewer people needed to operate Widow's Creek, he was sent to a different TVA plant outside Memphis in 2009. It would be years before he got to work near his hometown again. And one of the hard parts for a community like we're in, you know, the first thing that comes to mind with that is, I can't find that here. So, I mean, you either had to pack up your family and relocate to go to a larger area to find work. You had to make lifestyle changes where that I'm not going to make anywhere near the money I did make, but I can find a job somewhere in a different industry that, that I can stay home or... You know, you literally tell everybody pack up. It's it's went down a lot since I was a kid. The town used to be full, and over time, the older people that run the stores and stuff, they just died out. A lot of people used to, when they graduate, go off to college, they never come back. So why do data centers end up in unexpected places? If you met a person who asked, why aren't all the computers in California, what would you tell them? Yeah, my first reaction is they they show up exactly where I expect them to show up. But uh, I guess uh, let me let me answer your question better than that. Nan Bowden spent six years creating the technical infrastructure behind Google's data centers. She's one of the people responsible for the warehouse scale computers we heard about in earlier episodes. Today, she helps run the Everyday Robot Project, a groundbreaking robotics moonshot at Google's parent company, Alphabet. And so what I do in the project that, that I'm helping um, lead is a call an everyday robot, which is robots that help people in their everyday lives with tasks and in what, what are known as unstructured environments. Decades before tackling data centers and robots, Nan's first exposure to technology was electricity. She grew up in northern Alabama. Her father was a journeyman electrician who helped build the Widow's Creek plant. He also worked on a nuclear plant in Athens, Alabama, that was among the largest in the world at the time. He crawled around inside the machinery of some of America's biggest pieces of infrastructure. So we knew we were part of something that was, at least at the time, thought to be the future of power and electricity. So it, even though Alabama, certainly in that period, didn't uh, see itself as at the front of lots and lots of technologies, I think from a power infrastructure and from a, what we were trying to do with it, we definitely felt like we were, we were on the front end of, of modern, modern power infrastructure. Nan happens to be one of those unique people who understands the intersection of the electricity system, data centers, and rural economies. When TVA was looking for a place to put the Widow's Creek plant, it needed to find a plot of land with the right attributes. And they're exactly the kinds of things you need for a data center. So the data centers need um, a lot of space. And so uh, if you start to think about that collection of really attractive site properties, um, you see them actually in a lot of places where the TVA has been, had, had built their power plants for kind of exactly the same reasons. And I think that's really where you look at the old economies with, with like power infrastructure and the new economies with digital infrastructure. And, and at some level, they don't look that different. 
Hundreds of factors go into finding the right place for a data center, but they can be broken down into a few crucial elements. Space, electrical and water infrastructure, and people. Space is a top consideration. Data center campuses can be several hundred acres. How big is that exactly? If you wanted to walk around a 300-acre plot, it would be nearly a three-mile hike. And you'd probably encounter a lot of wildlife and natural beauty on that hike because these facilities are often built in remote places. Here's Joe Cava, the VP at Google who oversees data centers. Primarily, our data centers are not in major metropolitan areas, mostly because we want to buy, historically we've bought, you know, large pieces of property that we could develop over many, many years. And it's just like, you know, you can't go into downtown New York and find big pieces of property like that. And so that means that you're typically more out in rural areas. Although data centers might be removed from city centers, they need to be close to electricity and water infrastructure. The servers inside of Google's biggest data centers would stack higher than Mount Everest, and that requires lots of power. It's important for the planet that that electricity is clean, and it's important for data center operators that it's affordable too. In the case of Alabama, the energy needs of data centers have sparked a wave of new large-scale solar farms. In 2018 and 19, multiple internet companies, Google included, announced partnerships with TVA to bring millions of solar panels onto the region's power grid to increase the supply of carbon-free power at a competitive cost. Here's Nea Palmer, a director of energy strategy at Google. And so we think about it from the perspective of how clean and carbon-free can we make that energy? The cost of renewables have come down significantly. We've seen the cost of solar come down by 80%, the cost of wind come down by 60%. And so by focusing on these clean technologies, we've actually been able to get access to cost-effective electricity. Again, a very important component of operating a data center. And where do you find power lines, reliable water supply, and lots of land to build on? Well, old industrial sites are great candidates. A Google data center in Oregon is across the street from a former aluminum smelter. There's one in Tennessee built on the site of a never-finished semiconductor factory. And in Finland, an old paper mill became a warehouse for computers. But these facilities are only as good as the people who run them. That means finding people who have worked in industry, engineers, electricians, security officers, and technicians to maintain the machines. People who make stuff happen. The people of Jackson County are... In a word, amazing. Reggie McKnight is head of economic and community development for Google in the Southeast. They are thoughtful and hardworking. They are very entrepreneurial. And you could not find a better community of people to work with. And that includes people like Thomas Gamble. I came out of a power generation background. So, I mean, large scale electricity and things are nothing new to me. And what interests did you have growing up? What led you to work in an engineering job? I was always interested in how things work. My memory I laugh about still as a little kid, I thought if I ever made $10 an hour, I'd be rich. Thomas always thought he'd be a farmer. He liked seeing the tangible impact of his work. Then he wanted to be a doctor. But as he started pre-med, he worried about how much debt he'd have to take on. So he shifted to business management. It actually opened the door for me to get into TVA and learn about power plants and operations and electricity. And uh, once I started, it was something that really ap appealed to me. Uh, I guess I've found that I enjoy education, so I'm always trying to learn and adapt and pick up new things. So 
that kind of got me started and helped me progress through my ranks as a, you know, different levels in a power plant. Karen Ridley also worried about money being tight. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't think my parents could afford to send me to college. A Navy recruiter told Karen about a scholarship program that would help her pay for college. One day in the early 2000s, she was talking to the president of Northeast Alabama Community College, where she was enrolled. And he said, well, if you're good at math, then you should go into computer science. He said, that is the future. And I'd never really thought about it before. My dad loved computers and and had a computer for many years, but I never really played on it or learned anything about it. So I took an intro to computer science course. Everything sort of came naturally to me. I just understood it. It made sense, and, and I enjoyed it. So I changed my major to computer science. Heron got her associate's degree in 2003, but it's not always easy to find a job in tech with an associate's degree. And Jackson County, it didn't have many IT jobs. She had faith, though. Computers were clicking for her. They just made sense. So she went back to school to get her bachelor's degree. It took a while because I was working full time, 40 hours a week, and I had two kids by the end and um, just all the family responsibilities. So I could only take a few classes each semester. So what was it like working, going to school and raising kids at the same time? That was very difficult. So I worked full time five days a week, and then went to school two nights a week. The nights I didn't have school, I was doing homework. So I just knew I had to push through it. I mean, I had a goal, and I wasn't going to stop. Karen's story is not unlike Nan Bowden, who also discovered a new way to apply her love of math to computers. In high school, Nan got access to a cheap hobbyist computer that allowed her to program games and basic applications. That changed her relationship with technology. That's when I started to see it come together, not as a computing as a tool, but as a, um, an embodiment of a set of principles and a set of information flow that allows us to do things that were just impossible to do before um, the combination of math and computer science. But like so many other people who live in rural areas, Nan had to move elsewhere to pursue this passion. She went to the University of Alabama to study math. And there she got deeper into computing and information theory. Her undergraduate research led her to Caltech, where she did a PhD on the hardware and software of large-scale multi-computers, the precursors to data center servers. The internet as we know it still didn't exist at that time. And so the idea that, that I could foresee, oh, well, I want to be an executive at an internet company, I mean, it's, it's comical. It's not possible. So instead, what you do is you do the best you can with the opportunities that you have, um, leaning into those in a way that, um, that positions you for the next one because you can't see it. While Nan was building those early networks of computers, Karen was entering the Navy to pay for school, and Thomas was out inspecting power plants. None of them knew that their work would someday converge on a big plot of land in Alabama. In 2012, Karen earned her bachelor's degree in computer science. And it was good timing because a very large computer was about to show up in her backyard. It was 2015 and the manager in Bridgeport's utility office called up Mayor Bubba Hughes to share some news. Well, my general manager for Bridgeport Utility he told me that day before anybody else, you know, he knew a lot more about it than anybody in town. He told me, it looks like we're going to get a Google. 
data center, and you know, and I didn't believe it, and I just laughed it off. I said, yeah, I'm Bruce Ford, <laughs> you know. And he said, no, I'm serious, and you know. It turned out that Google was the one buying the land near the old coal plant. It was planning a $600 million campus that would power the internet and source renewable electricity from nearby solar farms. A literal transition from old to new. I said, golly, you crazy, you know, but like I say, I got so excited I couldn't sleep for a week. And once locals like the Bridgeport mayor heard the news, word got around. I went out telling it to everybody and they didn't believe it. <laughs> you know, they, I said, you're crazy. I said, you know, I said, no, I'm serious now. It's coming. When I heard of it, I was just so excited, just hoping that one day I'd be able to work here. I started looking online for job postings. One day my husband texted me. He had seen the data center technician job posted on there. And so I applied immediately. When I saw the opportunity, Google was coming somewhere close to my hometown. I couldn't pass up the opportunity, I guess. I had to at least try. The data center plans for Alabama were officially unveiled in June of 2015. It takes years to prepare a 360-acre industrial site. So much has to happen. Collaboration with local leaders, hashing out project details, and of course, hiring people. In the spring of 2018, the real heavy-duty action began. And for construction enthusiasts like Mayor Hughes, watching it was better than anything on TV. I mean, they, they was moving dirt. I forgot how many yard, million yards of dirt they moved, but they had like, I think, 100 pieces of equipment just running back and forth. Just, it was amazing. I mean, I could sit there all day and watch because I'm a construction guy anyway. These facilities are on par with some of America's biggest infrastructure projects. The Alabama Data Center was initially a $600 million project. By comparison, the Empire State Building in today's dollars cost about $635 million to build. So we're talking about something the scale of a New York City skyscraper spread out horizontally along 360 acres of land containing enough computers and networking gear to answer a person's search query anywhere in the world within milliseconds. And that can mean a lot of construction activity. One time they had 1,500 employees down there. Our grocery stores was full, our uh, restaurants was full, our drugstore was full. You couldn't go nowhere in town. You had to wait in line. And it, we weren't used to that, but I was... I was real pleased with it. I didn't mind waiting in line because our, our revenue went way up during the construction. With so much activity, it's natural for people to wonder what's going on. As the Jackson County site began to get built, construction crews piled up huge mounds of dirt that they had excavated. Yeah, everybody wondered if there were aliens here. They thought it was built underground because all they could see was the dirt from the road. So a lot of talk, a lot of rumors. It's high tech inside but not aliens. The overall system design of these warehouse computers is actually quite simple. Well, simple for someone who's spent their entire career building critical infrastructure. I'm responsible for building teams that put together very large Lego sets. If you think about a, a data center as something that you'd build out of Legos, my team does the building um, at the location that these data centers exist. Brett Rogers is Google's Director for Infrastructure Delivery across the Americas. In his career, he's helped build all kinds of facilities for banks, media companies, and even a major electric car maker. And that leads us to yet another data center metaphor. Brett thinks of these construction projects as putting together piles of Lego blocks. So we get a set of instructions, which, which are engineering plans uh, from, from another team outside of our group. 
we get a set of Legos, which are forms of electrical and mechanical equipment through a supply chain that we work with. We buy concrete and steel and, and concrete panels through different local supply chains, and we put them together at the site, kind of following instructions that, that are provided to us. Okay, so I've put together Legos before, and it looks really easy on the box, but then you dump out all the Legos and they're all over the floor and it looks really confusing. So is is it a complicated set of Legos? It's a very large set of Legos. I don't know if it's a very complicated set of Legos. All we really do is, is put up a warehouse building. You know, we're building the, the shell that these Legos go into. Um, and, and then we have three systems. The first system is the computing. That's the hardware we detailed in the last couple of episodes. Which are the racks inside the building where servers and, and data and communications networking equipment all lives. Then there's the mechanical system. Which helps us deal with the heat created by those servers. And then the electrical systems. Which just keep a steady stream of electrons flowing to those servers so they can do something with them. The real complexity comes when all these systems are networked together to keep everything running efficiently and to minimize energy use. They have to talk to each other. They have to send signals uh, between different monitoring points to optimize the way that they work and, and make them work more efficiently, balance the, the services between the electrical side and the mechanical side and, and the various peaks and valleys at, as servers ramp up and down. Um, but it, it's really more about scale than, than complication. So that, in a nutshell, or in a Lego box, as it were, is what's happening on the inside as a Google data center gets constructed. It's probably the kind of place where Nan's dad would feel right at home. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I would imagine if my father uh, walked onto the site of a Google data center, he would walk through a lot of it before he saw something that didn't look like what he was used to seeing, you know, like power infrastructure and cooling infrastructure. I mean, it would be more advanced, obviously, but it would be a while before he got to the computers and then saw, oh, well, here's a here's something different than what he would have seen before. And and I think that, you know, where the digital world meets the real world uh, in terms of the bits uh, and atoms when they meet each other in the data centers, I think that's really a part where a lot of people across the world have, have a part to play, even if they're not digital workers who live in Silicon Valley. In fact, quite the opposite. It'd be those folks who are, know how to make a cooling system work and those folks who know how to make a power system work. We need those workers um, every bit as much as we do the people who are programming. Data centers aren't just collections of computers. They're dirt, they're steel, they're pipes and cables, they're energy. And that means billions of dollars in economic activity and thousands of jobs. Here's Dan Harbeck, who's a public affairs manager for Google. He works with the Jackson County Data Center. It was Oxford Economics who had done a study and we, for the impact of Google data centers. Uh, and at the time, there were six across the, uh, the United States. The study quantified all the activity you just heard about. The impact from just those six data centers was something to the tune of $1.3 billion in economic activity, 11,000 jobs created, which is remarkable on its own. And typically when, you know, for every uh, Google job, there is a multiplier of another four to five additional jobs in that community. You're, you're seeing the impact, but we did the work to measure it. And of course, now you think, shoot, we've got 13 data centers. 13 in the U.S., that is. Google has 21 data center campuses and counting across four continents as of October 2020. The very first one launched in Northern Oregon in 2006. And it's still bustling today with hundreds of workers. 20 data centers later, Google is building them at a faster pace than ever. 
New projects are underway around the world from Denmark to Nebraska. Remember those 1,500 construction workers that Mayor Hughes mentioned when the Alabama data center was built? Well, Joe Cava remembers what this looked like at another data center site in Pryor, Oklahoma. I remember when I went there, there was one small little hotel that I wanted to stay in because it was very close to the site. And it was also kind of helping the the local business. And I happened to meet the general manager of that little uh, Holiday Inn hotel. And he said that since we had started construction with all the construction people that were staying there and all of our own Googlers that were going there to start bringing up the data center, his hotel was over 95% occupied every day for over a year since we had been there. And prior to that, they were scraping by and struggling to stay in business. And and then you, you look at like the people that run the restaurants in town, the people that um, have all the other different services that we employ in the data centers, the economic benefit of our investments in those communities, you really can't understate. That data center in Oklahoma was built back in 2011. And since then, it's expanded to $3 billion of total investment. The superintendent of public schools in Pryor, Don Raleigh, remembers hearing about it for the first time. And of course, you know, you hear rumors about stuff all the time, but then it started picking up some momentum and then some folks that were in the know, they started talking about the potential impact of a major company and it was not going to be something traditional, it would be more of a, a technology company. And then, of course, when it happened, it was just, uh, it's been amazing, honestly, for our district and our for our community. What was the impact exactly? Well, for us, it's been twofold. Um, of course, when you, any any company that puts a, a data center or anything like that, there's a tax Im- impact. Our valuation in our district at the time when I got here was $88 million, And it had creeped up to maybe $113 million with growth and different things that were happening. We currently set at the end of this year at $650 million. And the, most of that growth is basically the data center and that growth there. That means more money for hiring teachers, constructing school buildings, and buying new computers and supplies. When COVID hit, prior public schools had the money to buy every student from pre-K to 12th grade a Chromebook for remote learning. Superintendent Raleigh is really proud of that. He's also pretty proud of his digital cadavers, which the tax money helped him buy. I don't know if you've ever seen an anatomage table. It is a six-foot digital, basically, dissection table. It's a medical school piece of equipment. They basically have, I think it's four now, but originally it had three cadavers that they've actually frozen, and then they sliced them and then took video picture, rather, of every slice of that, like a third of a millimeter all the way through the bodies. So it's created a digital cadaver, all the systems. You can slide through it. You can go just the skeletal. I want to go just nervous system. I can do brains. And these kind of programs are happening all over the world. In Ireland, data center Googlers support a program that connects young students with professional women role models. And in North Carolina, the data center helps organize the Gravity Games, a competition of gravity-powered cars with more than 50 teams from local schools. In northern Alabama, the data center has helped bring a mobile science education lab to the community with a snazzy 3D printer. And after a while, these data centers just become a part of local life. I think now it's like, yeah, well, Johnny's dad works for Google or, you know, their mom works for Google. And we've got a number of staff that are, have ties that way. So for the most part, now I think it's kind of it's they're a part of our fabric a little more. But before any of that could happen, first the jobs needed to be filled. 
In 2018, Karen saw an opening at the Widow's Creek campus, a tech job right in her backyard. Now, as a data technician, Karen works with computers every day, fixing them, repairing them, configuring them. And in 2020, she was promoted and began working with the software engineering teams on coding. So at this time in your life, what did it mean to you to get the job? You know, it was just something I was always striving for and always hoping for and praying for was to be able to work in this field. You know, I had spent so much time in school learning and getting degrees and never really had a job in the IT field. And where I live, to be able to go to work somewhere in the IT field, I would have had to commute probably an hour each way to work and back every day. And so when this opportunity opened up, I was so excited. I was so happy to be able to work. My commute to work is seven minutes every day. So I'm basically working in my backyard. It's amazing to be able to do the job that I want to do, that I'm excited about, and still be right here at home. Do you teach any people from the data center at Zumba classes now? No, none of them have come to my classes before. You got to change that. I know. (laughs) And as you might have guessed, Thomas got the job too. You know, I never thought that I would be even somebody they would consider, but it ends up it worked out fairly well. And I've been with Google about uh, just shy of two years now. So He's now a facilities manager. We're mostly responsible for keeping up the power to the facility, electrical and the cooling, all the things necessary to make sure that our processors and all of our equipment is running, that we can supply our customers' needs. So that, that is hand-in-hand hand what I did for years for TVA. So it's a, it's, it's a full-time, essential-type function. And he carries the same kind of pride that he did while working on power plants for TVA. TVA, it was providing electricity to homes. Uh, you, a lot of people don't think of Google as essential, but when you think of all the things that are done and all the processes we work for communication and information, uh, the companies we support, a lot of things would, would really fail without something organizing and supplying the, the backbone of information that we do. Yeah, I've, I've felt that for years in power generation, right? I mean, you, you could see the immediate impact. If I stopped working, you know, you could put people's power off. It puts hospitals and lives at risk. But coming over, that was my first little aha moment of a data center and what, what everything we do truly means, right? What's playing out in Alabama and places all over the world It's a new blend between large-scale industry and the cloud revolution, and it's bringing the benefits of the internet economy to an increasingly diverse range of people. Here's Reggie McKnight again. From the people building it to the computer engineers and the folks who manage the data center on a day-to-day basis, it's an amazing amalgamation of people. And that is really the strength of the data centers, that we have the strength to really connect the world. In April of 2018, Nan Bowden gave a speech at the groundbreaking for the Widow's Creek Data Center. She talked about her Alabama upbringing and her connection to the old coal plant through her father, who once worked there. I mean, I think if you wrote it as a book or a movie, people would say, oh, that's not going to happen. I mean, it's just kind of almost too perfect in its arc in that it was, you know, he was working in an industry that at the time was dangerous 
but yet critical for the region and critical for his family. And yet now we're full circle coming to a point where it's uh, his daughter is working uh, for a company that's bringing a green data center and jobs and investment and making that region part of the internet economy um, directly. As Nan spoke, she overlooked the valley where the data center had broken ground. Off in the distance were retired smokestacks from the old coal plant. So you just could see in one picture that that old world that was being replaced by the new world, and the new world is better. And and I'm a I'm often accused of being a techno optimist because I am, and you could just kind of see it. You could see that old world coal atoms, somewhat dangerous work that he was doing now to something that's um, a green data center, part of the internet uh, that's really putting Alabama right at the heart of where um, the internet economy is going. And that's our show. Where the Internet Lives is produced by PostScript Audio in collaboration with Google. Our theme music and scoring are by Echo Finch. You can subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you get podcasts. And please give us a rating if you're enjoying our journey together so far. In this episode, you heard from Karen Ridley, Nan Bowden, Thomas Gamble, and of course, the mayor of Bridgeport, Alabama, David Bubba Hughes. That's my nickname, Bubba. There's a lot of Bubba's in Alabama. <laughs> You also heard the voices of Joe Cava, Neha Palmer, Dan Harbeck, Reggie McKnight, Don Raleigh, and Brett Rogers. And coming up in future episodes, the epic engineering challenge of sourcing clean energy for data centers around the clock. Plus, why data centers are perfect for hiding out during the zombie apocalypse. I'm Barry Fisher. Thanks for listening. <laughs>